Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Why do we buy what we buy? Will what we buy make us happier, sexier, or more successful? In the current economy, many of us may question whether we really need all this stuff and how it impacts our lives. I spoke with Jeffrey Miller on May 29th, 2009, to discuss how marketers take advantage of our buying habits and how we could better understand our consumer instincts. We began our conversation when I asked him to define evolutionary psychology. Jeffrey Miller, welcome to Radio Curious. Thanks, Barry. It's a pleasure to be here. So, evolutionary psychology. Can you tell us what it is and how it was developed as a genre in the field of psychology? Evolutionary psychology is really the attempt to understand human nature. It was founded about 1990 by some very bright but frustrated psychologists, and they thought psychology is a mess. It doesn't have any integrity or coherence. You can take courses in cognitive psychology, social psychology, developmental, all the different areas, and they don't fit together very well. So the early evolutionary psychologists thought, well, the mind evolved, the brain evolved, and maybe we should take the same theoretical framework that's been really successful in biology, that is evolutionary theory, and see how far we can get with that in understanding human nature. And maybe we'll have a more integrated science of psychology, and maybe we'll get new insights. So what do you look at in terms of how the brain has evolved? And I presume when you say evolved, you're going back um, beyond when we lived in the savanna in Africa and began to walk out 60,000 years ago. You're probably going back much longer than that. Yeah, most of the focus is on the period of uh, about the last two million years, what fossil people call the Pleistocene, and that's when humans were evolving in the southern half of Africa. And when we'd moved out of the forests, we weren't forest-dwelling apes like um, the chimps or gorillas. We were running around the savanna, these open grasslands. We were figuring out how to hunt, how to gather plants, tubers, berries, nuts. And we were living in small groups, mostly uh, friends and relatives. We weren't living in caves, but we were uh, out there on the open savanna trying to avoid predators, avoid disease, and get enough food to eat. Living in extended family groups, and there would have been a whole network of uh, social ties and obligations and expectations that modern humans feel quite comfortable in. And, and if we don't have those social groups and social ties, we feel distressed and, and alienated. But it's those social groups and the behavioral patterns within them that are subversively directed to us in our society now by marketers. Yeah, so the basic idea is that the concerns that we had over the last couple of million years, concerns about finding a mate, raising healthy, successful kids, maintaining friendships, those concerns have sort of been imprinted into our instincts so that uh, our brains naturally care about those things. And our brains particularly care about what our peers think of us. We want to be sexually attractive. We want to be socially popular. 
And those instincts, I think, are what marketers are trying to target with most advertising. They want to convince us that somehow the product that they're offering is going to increase our status in the eyes of our peer group. And I think that's the fundamental equation, that you create a brand image or product that somehow seems to have a social or sexual function for the consumer and that plays upon these social instincts that we've evolved over tens of thousands of generations. So then am I correct when I say it's either subtly or perhaps uh, subversively trying to coerce us? Yeah, Barry, I think there's a lot of influence. I mean, marketers like the term influence rather than coercion. But it's very much the view that a successful ad campaign or new brand has an irresistible appeal to a certain set of consumers. The consumers don't really have a choice about whether they like it or not. The most successful ad campaign will create an image in the consumer's mind that they highly desire and and where they're willing to go into substantial credit card debt to obtain that product because of what they unconsciously think it'll do for them in their own social and sexual lives. Tell us about that unconscious uh, thought or those unconscious beliefs in the social and sexual lives. Well, Barry, I think a lot of human behavior is driven, it's not driven by a Freudian unconscious, it's driven by a kind of Darwinian unconscious. In other words, we've got all of these preferences and abilities and interests and concerns, and they all evolve. For example, the male attraction to female beauty. You know, it's there because the males who paid attention to which females were healthy and fertile tend to have more kids than the males who sort of mated randomly with anything that moved. So the whole sense of beauty that males have evolved is there because it paid these reproductive benefits. Now, males don't understand why they're attracted to beauty consciously. They just are. They're wired up that way. Likewise, females don't understand why they're attracted typically to male intelligence or kindness when they're choosing a mate. So there are all these hundreds of of adaptations or capabilities going on all the time in the background of our consciousness and that are shaping our behavior. And and that's largely what we evolutionary psychologists try to study in in our research. We try to peel back the layer of consciousness that, that we think drives behavior. And we try to look at these deep instincts that are actually shaping much of what we do. The better we can understand all of these instincts, the more conscious we can be about them, the better our deliberate decision-making can be. So in the, in the case of consumerism, for example, I think if a middle-aged guy is having a little midlife crisis and he's not sure how he feels about his, his life or his wife or his kids or his house, he might be tempted to go out and change his career, buy a new sports car, etc. I think if he read enough evolutionary psychology, he'd have enough self-insight to realize he's basically deciding, do I want to go back in the mating market and try to get a different mate or not? Now, his wife will probably feel nervous that he's going out and buying sports cars and new wardrobes, but she might not understand why she's feeling nervous, that she's basically being reevaluated and he's deciding whether to dump her or not. So I think if, if both people in that marriage have better conscious insight 
into their sexual instincts. It actually empowers them to talk through some of these issues and uh, use their, their power of human reason and communication to, to uh, improve the quality of the marriage. Do those powers of human reason to improve the quality of the marriage have links, either conscious or unconscious, to evolutionary psychology? Yeah, I think they do. What evolutionary psychology has started to turn its focus on is, is we used to study physical attractiveness a lot, and hundreds of people still do that. But increasingly, we also study the attractiveness of psychological traits like intelligence and personality and, and even things like moral virtues, like integrity and reliability and kindness. And we've realized those are also sexually attractive. In particular, if somebody can talk articulately about their feelings and resolve conflicts effectively, we think that's actually instinctively attractive to the other sex. It's not just something that civilized people learn to do. We think that primitive tribes are running around with the women and men, you know, they talk to each other, and they have conflict, and they resolve it. And the couples that are successful in doing that simply do better, and they cooperate more effectively and raise more kids. So I think there's an innate attractiveness to, to being able to talk intelligently and creatively to resolve conflict. Would you suggest that that innate attractiveness and, and that ability is um, socially uh, learned, or is it something we receive in our genes? I think we receive it in our genes, but it unfolds over years and years of development and practice and learning. So it's what psychologist Steven Pinker has called, it's an instinct to acquire an art. That is, we're wired up to learn these forms of social communication and insight. We're not born right out of the womb with these. I think most of adolescence is actually designed to be the learning period where we figure out uh, the, how, how does the opposite sex think? How do we talk to them? How do we stack up in terms of competition against our rivals? How popular are we in our peer group? So it takes years and years to polish all these skills, but there are lots of uh, animals that, that never learn any of these skills, and that just aren't social the way that we are. Even including our species of animal, which for some have a difficulty in marriages that do not endure. Yeah, what what's funny about humans is that we're very bird-like in our relationships. There, you know, there are 4,000 species of mammals, and almost none of them form long-term stable relationships the way that humans do. In most of them, the males compete, the females choose the healthiest, strongest males, and the females raise their offspring with virtually no help from the males. That's a typical mammal pattern. But humans are a lot more like birds. Birds often form these long-term relationships and raise their offspring cooperatively. And it's also interesting that in those bird species that do that, both the males and females make efforts to attract the best mates that they can. Both the males and females will often have elaborate plumage and do little dances and do all sorts of elaborate courtship, just like human males and females do. It's not just males showing off and females choosing the way it is with most mammals. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Jeffrey Miller, a professor of 
evolutionary psychology at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. He's the author of Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. We're talking with Jeffrey Miller from his temporary home in Australia. This is Radio Curious, and I'm Barry Vogel. Jeffrey, what are you doing in Australia? Well, Barry, I'm here on sabbatical, so I'm here for six months. We met some researchers from Australia, and they raved about how great the lifestyle is here and how wonderful the, the research is, and so my wife and I just couldn't resist. We had to come over to Brisbane, and we've been working in a, in a genetics research center where there's a wonderful, huge set of uh, twins, 25,000 twin pairs that have been studied for about 30 years. And so there's a wonderful set of data that we can study uh, from all sorts of angles as psychologists. And uh, that's what we're doing here, apart from the uh, surfing and hikes in the subtropical rainforests and all of that. Presumably those are identical twins. Yeah, about half of them are identical and half of them are fraternal twins. And it's really by comparing the similarity of the identical ones versus the similarity of the... Uh, fraternal twins that you can make some very powerful influences about the inheritance of behavior. Have you been able to determine anything on that aspect yet? Well, we're, we're still sort of in the middle of some, some research, but for example, at the moment, um, we're looking at the heritability of uh, female sexual response and orgasm rates, and we're trying to figure out what influences at the genetic level uh, some women really enjoying sex consistently and other women not having orgasms hardly ever. And we're trying to understand how um, genes influence that and, and then what the evolutionary origins and functions of female orgasm are. So that's the kind of thing that you can do now that would have sounded, you know, science fiction-y 30 years ago, but we've actually got the data to, to delve into those sorts of issues now. Do you have any understandings you can share with us now, or is that for another day? I think it's probably for another day, but uh, there have, for example, been a, uh, two papers published so far that at least have shown that likelihood of women having orgasms during sex is largely a genetic control. It is heritable. It's not something that women just learn. Uh, mothers pass on to daughters the rate at which they tend to have orgasms. And that's sort of interesting. It's not what most social scientists might have expected. Jeffrey Miller, author of Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior. Can you uh, share with us the specific uh, traits that people seem to exhibit when they buy certain things and perhaps the, even the reverse of that when we are being marketed certain things? Yeah, I think there are really six central traits that are most important that explain a lot of the individual differences between people. And we unconsciously pay a lot of attention to these traits when we're evaluating a potential mate or friend. And I think the central six are what are called the big five personality traits, plus another key trait, which is general intelligence. Now, the big five personality traits, they might sound pretty obscure and they're not widely known, but for about the last 30 years in psychology, they've been roaring ahead as uh, by far the most powerful way uh, 
psychology has ever developed for understanding individual differences. And these big five personality traits are called openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and emotional stability. And you can tell an awful lot about somebody by knowing sort of how they score on each of those five traits. And then general intelligence is the sixth trait, and it's also very powerful in predicting not just somebody's performance at school and work, but also uh, things like avoiding accidents, driving safely, uh, learning how to invest wisely, resolving arguments in a, in a marriage, um, making good consumer decisions. So all six of these traits are really important, and I think they're the things that people are unconsciously trying to show off through a lot of their consumer decision-making. So then when the marketers are trying to sell something, how do they select either their intended group of purchasers or uh, motivate people to be part of that group? Well, marketers are a funny group because, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of them, and they work really hard at their jobs, but they tend to use very outdated psychology theories that are about 50 years old. So what they do when they think about a new brand is they ask, what sex and age group and ethnicity and income level is this brand going to appeal to? They hardly ever talk about the key personality traits that actually predict consumer behavior much more powerfully than even age or sex do. So the marketers will go around asking consumer questions and doing focus groups and interviewing consumers and and asking about political attitudes and religion and where you live and how you feel about this or that. But they're really not tuned in to these central six traits. They don't measure them. They don't know how powerful they are at predicting behavior. And that's probably just as well, because if marketers really understood the power of these traits, then their advertising and branding would be even harder to resist. So how does a person resist it? particularly in light of the financial crisis that we have here in the United States and seems to be spreading worldwide? I think the global financial crisis is leading a lot of consumers to rethink their lives and to step back and ask, why am I working so hard? Why do we shop? Why do we have all this stuff in the garage that we never use? So people are rethinking things, um, but they don't really have a good model of how consumerist capitalism works. They don't really understand why they themselves are motivated to buy things. Um, they don't understand the unconscious instincts that are driving a lot of their own consumption. So I think by better understanding uh, the evolutionary psychology behind consumerism, consumers can actually rethink and reprioritize their lives, and they can ask themselves, yeah, why, why am I doing this? Does my spouse actually care how I dress as much as how often I talk to them or how kind I am to our kids or pets? Um, what I hope is that people will realize there's enormous power and attractiveness in ordinary face-to-face -face conversation and that that can cut through a lot of the consumerist nonsense that we spend most of our lives running around and doing. In your book, at the end of many either sentences or paragraphs, you put in some what might be called self-deprecating humor 
uh, particularly towards your profession as an evolutionary psychologist, or perhaps against groups in general just to be funny? Why, is my question. Well, this is a fairly bitter pill. I mean, the whole book spent is saying, if you understood what you were doing uh, with your careerism and shopaholism, you know, you being Americans in general, if you understood what you were doing, you'd realize a lot of it's folly, it's misguided. And that's tough for people to take, to say, ah, uh, I've spent years chasing sexual attractiveness, social popularity in the wrong ways. Well, you have to add a little bit of uh, sugar. You have to add some, some humor and reassure people that it's okay. You know, it's better late than never. It's better to realize how silly our behavior is as social primates and to be able to at least rethink it now rather than spend our whole lives not understanding our um, economic behavior and consumer behavior. So that's why the humor is in there and that's why the self-deprecation is in there that just as stand-up comedians can tell us truths that nobody else can tell us because they use humor, that's something that I think more scientists should be trying to do. The other aspect that I found curious, if not amusing and perhaps fulfilling, is your frequent references to sex, uh, attractiveness, and unusual forms of behavior. What sort of forms, for example? Yiffing. Belching, clear plating? Yeah, well, so I, I refer to a lot of exotic sexual practices in, in the Spent book, partly because they're just hilarious. And with the power of Google now, I can refer to really obscure terms and hope that readers will go look them up on the Internet and get a good giggle out of them. And I don't actually have to explain them in the book because... Uh, that would be a little bit too explicit. So that's one reason for including a lot of those exotic behaviors. And also to remind all of the, uh, the readers, say, over the age of 25, the young people are in a mating market and have a level of sophistication about sex that is almost inconceivable to the older generation, and that they have a whole new set of terms and relationships and, and practices that are completely below our radar. Can you define or explain some of those practices below our radar, our being people over 25? Well, I think one major phenomenon now that's very baffling to the older cohort is the whole phenomenon of hooking up. Hooking up is what a lot of college students will call casual sex. And they seem to use the new information technologies like mobile phones, and the internet and the social networking sites to arrange um, liaisons with each other that don't have much emotional content, but that are just sort of fun. And that's a fairly natural thing for young social primates to do. I mean, uh, it seems to be quite natural for hunter-gatherers to go through a period of sexual experimentation with a lot of different mates before they settle down and start having kids with one main partner. And so young people are doing that. They're using the new information technologies to find each other, to find people with similar interests. And uh, they're having a lot of fun doing it. Uh, it makes very little sense to their parents, who are a lot more puritanical and sort of disapproving of that. But the young people are realizing, hey, if, if I want to find a sexual partner, 
I don't necessarily have to wait until I finish college and have a successful career and buy a bunch of stuff. I can just cut through all the nonsense and find mates now who are fun and interesting and, and fulfilling and attractive. And I don't have to go through the whole consumerist treadmill in order to find those mates. So they're figuring out how to, how to opt out of our economy, basically. Well, Jeffrey Miller, author of Spent, Sex, Evolution, and Consumer Behavior, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, we have two signature questions. One is, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that you've had recently? Well, one thing that, that I've been learning at this genetic center in Brisbane is that the whole human genome, all the DNA that we've got that, that builds our lives and, uh, and our organs and our brains, uh, it's a lot more complicated than anybody thought. About 10 years ago, we thought that only 2% of all the DNA in every human cell is actually doing anything is actually making proteins or influencing how the body grows. But now there's a, a biologist here named John Matic, and Matic has argued very forcefully, I think, that almost all of the DNA is actually functional, that it's all having a role in orchestrating the development of the body and brain. And I think this is revolutionizing biology. It's one of the most exciting times ever to, uh, to be a geneticist and to think about how the human genome uh, creates the human brain. So these are very exciting days, and I think my aha moment there was just realizing that psychologists have to pay a lot more attention to genetics because the rate of progress in genetics is, is staggering at the moment, and it's unlike anything that we've ever seen in, in the human sciences before. And Jeffrey Miller, can we ask you about an interesting book that you've read lately? I think probably the most powerful book I've read recently was by Peter Singer, the philosopher from Princeton, and it's called The, uh, the Life You Can Save. And it's about uh, the moral burden on people in the developed world, people in rich countries, the moral burden that we have to end global poverty. And Singer makes, I think, a very powerful case that Every $100 we spend on luxury goods in our own lives is $100 that we're not donating to help save several lives in Africa or India or rural China. And we have to face the consequences of that, that we have a very heavy moral burden to hold our consumer lifestyles up to, up to the light and say, is it really worthwhile for me to spend the extra $10,000 to get the BMW rather than and the Toyota if those same $10,000 could save 100 lives of poor villagers? You know, if, if we really face that trade-off and we say, you know, is a little tiny bit of extra luxury to me worth 100 human lives of strangers I haven't met? Um, Singer puts that very starkly and powerfully, I think, and, and that's a book that I think everybody should read. Well, Jeffrey Miller, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thanks very much, Barry. It's been a pleasure. Jeffrey Miller is a professor of evolutionary psychology at the University of New Mexico and the author of Spent, Sex, 
Evolution and Consumer Behavior. The book he recommends is The Life You Can Save, Acting Now to End World Poverty by Peter Singer. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.